1513, Peter Collis wrote two letters to his master, John Empson, brother of the more famous Sir Richard Empson, to explain why he was having trouble collecting his rents and selling his timber. He painted a grim picture. The world is dead and hard to come by money as ever it was in any man's days alive. The problem was this busy world of war that setteth men's hearts away clean so that it maketh the world as dead as ever it was for selling of anything except it be that thing that must be had of very pure need. War made money short, firstly because the tax policies of Henry VIII were remarkably successful. As Collis explained, these payments that be paid to the king already have made men so bare. When the money supply was around a million pounds, only half of it in the silver used for everyday transactions, taking more than 100,000 pounds in cash out of the economy in 1512 to 13, more than 400,000 pounds in 1522 to four, and again in 1541 to three, and more than 700,000 pounds in 1544 to six, must have caused problems. Already in 1475, the Pastons had had trouble selling timber because of the weight of war taxation. And George Bernard, examining the widespread refusal to pay the amicable grant in 1525, and Richard Hoyle, analyzing the deeper economic crisis of the later 1540s, have each shown how taxation pulled money out of the circulation, producing, as Richard Hoyles put it, a collapse of trade and a sharp deflation especially as parliamentary subsidies taxed wealth held in goods and capital harder than income from land. Collis, perhaps because he wasn't writing from a major manufacturing region, he was in Sussex, did not mention a second reason why war might slow the economy, the disruption it caused to England's exports, particularly woolen cloth. In 1525, export troubles apparently exacerbated the slowdown caused by the taxation of mercantile capital. And from the late 1520s, governments tried to prevent export interruptions causing unemployment and domestic unrest. But Collis did mention a third effect of war, that people were spending on harnessing of men, buying arms and armor. So might the economic effects of war have been not merely depressive, but also distorting and even in some ways stimulating? Well, the direct damage done by war to most of Henry's realms was small compared to the devastation wrought by large armies or constant raiding where the great European powers of his day clashed. Florence, Rome, Milan, Metz and Magdeburg faced full-scale sieges by the armies of Charles V. Milan, Naples, Perpignan and Luxembourg by those of Francis I, Belgrade, Buda and Vienna by those of Suleiman the Magnificent. In this context, Sir Thomas Wyatt's brief occupation of Southwark looks tame. <laughs> Some places were more vulnerable than others. It wasn't just the Isle of Wight in 1545 that faced French raids. Weymouth, Wyke Regis and Portland in 1491, Brighton in 1514, and Marazion around the same time. Kingstainton rather later, Brighton, New Haven and Seaford in 1545. Poor Edward Spencer of Hunstanton in Norfolk, probably in 1475, was taken out of his house by Frenchmen upon the seacoast and ransomed for 100 pounds. 
the Scilly Isles and the Channel Isles were more permanently exposed, but none of the mainland coasts suffered like the land borders with Scotland and Gaelic Ireland. Two centuries of warfare had made the Scottish borders perilous. The monks of Holmcultrum, some 20 miles from Gretna Green, complained to the Pope in 1508 that the Scots had destroyed their buildings and possessions and they had had to take refuge in Wolstie Castle. In the quavering peace of the early 1540s, individual Englishmen were killed by the Scots when out farming, one slain at his own plough, another upon the daylight labouring at his husbandry. Yet even in the north, destruction was narrowly confined. St Bee's Priory lay on the coast some 30 miles further south than Holmcultrum. In 1523, the prior panicked at news of a Franco-Scottish fleet, worried that this country shall be utterly destroyed forever, since this poor coast and country is not accustomed with such wars. Careful examination of estate accounts and tithe accounts for the parishes south of Berwick has shown that wartime raids from the 1480s to the 1520s wasted whole farms and depressed production, but that the effects were localised and production recovered fast when peace was re-established. Even in the 1540s, while the Scots could take livestock, goods and prisoners, or burn houses up to 10 miles inside England at Kylo or Wooler, they struck mostly the border dales or the parishes nearest the Tweed, like Ord, Heaton, Twizzle, Tillmouth and Walk. Insecurity spread much further in Ireland. Gaelic lords sometimes raided English areas for weeks at a time, and in 1533, one party of O'Briens even broke into Dublin Castle and took away plunder and prisoners. But even there, the pale was becoming more secure as English governance revived. To humble the Scots, Henry's men planned not just devastation and spoil of the country, but that their fishing may be letted and their fisher boats destroyed and that the Scots should have no manner of vent or uttering of their wools and salmon, which is the only commodity of Scotland. How far did England suffer from such wider economic warfare? War clearly interfered with international trade, as dips in customs revenues attest. Its two main effects were illustrated by the sad experience of William Johnson, citizen and skinner of London, in 1522. He was trading at Bordeaux when war broke out, whereupon most of his goods, amounting to great sums of money, were then attached and taken by Frenchmen within the said town of Bordeaux, and he robbed and despoiled of the most part of all his goods and utterly undone. Somehow he took ship for London, but in his returning upon the sea, he not only was by divers Frenchmen taken prisoner, but also all such goods as he then had were also robbed, spoiled, and taken from him so that he was even more utterly undone. (laughs) That does come from the Chancery Bill, as you can guess. In wartime, Anglo-French trade was frozen by reciprocal arrests of merchants, and this hit the wine trade particularly hard, depressing imports and driving up prices until peace returned. In 1525, a letter writer noted excitedly that with peace announced, English consumers shortly shall have good, cheap merchandise, specifying corn, linen cloth, and all manner wines, red, white, claret, white malmsey, rumney, bastard, camplet, tyre, muscadel, alicant, and hollock. Get the feeling he'd been missing it. (laughs) 
safe conducts or import licenses for trade of all sorts, sometimes using neutral or allied ships, were available at a price in open war or at times of tension, but they were all too often revoked or ignored. Wartime stagnation made merchants cautious. Before the wars of 1542 to 7, the merchants of Bristol were registering on average 14 apprentices a year. Afterwards, 20 a year. But in wartime, the average dropped below 10, and at worst, it fell to 4. Once at sea, wartime trade was made hazardous by privateers, an anachronistic term, but the best we have. French ships from Dieppe, Enfleur, and Boulogne hunted the narrow seas, others the coasts of Brittany, the mouth of the Garonne, and even the coasts of Ireland. The Scots operated not only in the North Sea, but also off Normandy and Brittany. In 1532, one Londoner on his way to Bordeaux found himself pinned in at Foy amid swirling news of Scots in the Channel, in the Scillies, off Land's End. They'd taken 14 English ships and driven nine or 10 into Brest. Scots from the west coast ports ranged west, an air captain taking the flower of Minehead in 1482. Shipping was not safe even in peacetime, as Danes, Spaniards and Bretons, Dunkirkers, Hollanders and Zealanders set off by turmoil in the Netherlands scoured the seas. But wartime was worse, and losses could be spectacular. It was said in London that three ships taken with rich merchandise on their way back from Antwerp in 1558 were worth more than £20,000. Though less well recorded than international commerce, coastal trade was vital in distributing food, fuel, and other commodities around England, exchanging, for example, Norfolk grain for Newcastle coal. Local accounts, like those for Poole, uh, which included the keyage levied on all incoming ships, so coastal ships as well as international ships, suggest that war hit coastal trade as much as international. The small size and the small crews of the crayers and other ships in which it was carried made it vulnerable to daring raiders. In autumn 1544, the depredations of Scottish ships off Scarborough, Whitley and Hartlepool, hovering up and down upon these coasts, were such that the King's Majesty's subjects cannot well use any trade on the seas in these parts without danger. And as powder for shore artillery ran low, there were even worries that the Scots would burn the ships and the boats in the harbours and piers hereabouts. Newcastle found its coastal trade dried up, as many of its ships were stuck in other harbours, driven in by men of war. In the winter of 1543-4, the Scots took ships along the Norfolk coast, and in 1549, the French scooped up coastal traders off Sussex. Fishing boats were particularly vulnerable, spending long hours at sea with small crews, whether close inshore, going after flatfish or pilchards, further out at sea for herring, hake or sprats, or on the way back from the distant Norway, Iceland or Newfoundland fisheries for cod or ling. The North Sea and Channel coasts were equally unsafe. In the 1540s, the Scots took Southwold fishers on their way back from Iceland, and the French raided off Devon and Dorset, Yorkshire and Durham. The effects were inhibiting. The King told Dover in 1544 that all their boats should be sent out to fish, but they replied that, since in the time of war, they in no wise are able to perform the same. At Yarmouth in 1564, the risks were pooled in a scheme whereby all those fishing from the town would collectively ransom any captured boat. We should reserve our special sympathy 
for John Bircham, Robert Salmon, Bartholomew Storm, and Robert Windle of Whitby, who went out fishing in the early 1520s in a 25-ton ship owned by William Pryor of Bridlington and Elizabeth Dodd's widow. On their way back to port, they were met by a ship of war of France, which took them captive, but agreed to ransom, ship, crew, and catch for 22 pounds, six shillings, and eightpence. Bircham was sent into Whitby and on to Bridlington, where the owners agreed to cover the cost. The French were paid off, and the ship and crew were released, only to be captured immediately by Scots. <laughs> John Bircham sued the owners for the ransom money, which they'd refused to pay because they had not got their ship back. At least he had a good lawyer, a certain Thomas Cromwell. Many English seamen thus ended up as prisoners in France or Scotland. The customary ransom for a mariner was one pound and a master two pounds, but merchants were seen as richer pickings, even though many of those captured were young apprentices or factors. Their ransoms run up to 30 pounds, though the expenses of a long imprisonment might add 50 pounds or more. Charitable contributions from boroughs, livery companies or parishes helped meet ransom demands as did arms collected under royal license. In the 1540s, the church wardens of Leon C in Essex spent 17 pounds 10 shillings redeeming local men from France, and those at North Hales in Suffolk, 13 pounds freeing prisoners in Scotland. Without such help, prisoners and their friends had to put together complex ransom packages which readily went wrong. At the peace of 1564, local officials investigated what English prisoners remained in France to avoid agonies like the five-year captivity endured by the Norwich apprentice merchant Godfrey Charles in the 1470s, during which time he went deaf. The dangers wars posed to trade and fishing were evident in the precaution taken against them, wafting, the provision of armed ships as convoy escorts or fisheries protection vessels. Wafting could be bought from private contractors, but it was costly. In the early 1490s, when the Flemish rebels based at Slaus uh, were blockading Antwerp, uh, a group of London merchants hired a Genoese carrack, the Santa Maria, with 150 men to protect them, apparently at a cost of 400 pounds. That got them as far as Vera in Zealand, where they had to hire smaller boats with local soldiers to escort them through the channels to Antwerp. Much better were communal solutions, preferably with an admixture of royal coordination and resources. As the navy grew, so the crown became more ambitious in the protection it would offer, but it never guaranteed to replace self-help. As Henry VII pointed out in 1491, while his great army remaineth on the sea for the better defence of our subjects haunting the same, French pirates and thieves lying in await for their advantages and praise might still attack fishermen when our said army is far off from them. Overseas traders turned readily to the king's protection, albeit at a price. Royal help in getting the wool fleets of the merchants of the staple from Hull to Calais and the cloth fleets of the merchant adventurers from London to Zealand grew steadily from the 1480s to the 1550s. Naval protection for the long-distance fishermen of the Iceland fleet increased over the same period, though safety was not guaranteed. In 1524, seven fishing boats and one wafter were overcome by the Scots. By the 1510s, even the East Anglian herring fleet was expensively protected by the king's ships. Henry was understandably concerned to guard the ships that carried supplies to his armies and brought back expensive arms shipments from the continent. 
and his ships also cruised the Channel, where one lucky English factor, William Mildenhall, was taken by the French with his cargo of Spanish wine, but rescued by an English ship being a captain of the King's Wars two days later. But the Navy couldn't do everything, as Henry's councillors pointed out in a rather petulant tone in November 1544. They told Newcastle merchants who complained of Scottish depredations that it would be overburdenous and almost impossible that the King's Majesty should set to the sea ships to defend all parts of the realm. They should therefore set out ships for defence of their own goods and traffic, as other ports had done. Hull had indeed put out three ships, only to see them dispersed by storms and Scottish attacks, but York and Scarborough pleaded incapacity. Norfolk and Suffolk, the northerners were told, had done better, wafting their fishermen during all this herring time. Yarmouth had well-established mechanisms for fisheries protection. In 1557, for example, the town assembly hired two ships with guns to protect the fishers, and in 1563, it set up Thomas Betts's ship, the Elizabeth George, to do the same. Yarmouth's instinct for self-defence was particularly strong. On Sunday the 30th of November, 1544, the townsmen rushed out of church to rescue two crayers loaded with wheat for Boulogne, taken by the French, and took six French prisoners in the process. Fourteen months later, a ship and 30 boats, supported by the town's guns, took two Dieppe raiders in the Yarmouth roads and sank a third. The sink ports, too, could look after themselves. They fitted out two barks to protect their herring fleet in 1563, while Rye launched boats to rescue its inshore fishermen in 1564. By 1559, the Newcastle merchant adventurers had learnt their lesson. They levied over 50 pounds on their members to pay for the Queen's ship Falcon to escort their vessels to Flanders and man the Mary Flower to join her. War clearly interfered with various sectors of the economy, but did it substitute alternative economic activities for those it inhibited? Cloth exports dipped in wartime, though not too badly, because the Netherlands, the major export market for cloth, was usually an ally. By drawing money out of the economy, war presumably also depressed the domestic demand for cloth. Yet war also stimulated that domestic demand because so many coats were made for soldiers and sailors. Christopher Dyer has estimated the total cloth production of England in the 1520s at 200 to 240,000 cloths, of which 80 to 90,000 were exported. The difference between wartime and peacetime exports was of the order of 8,000 cloths a year. Coats for 40,000 men in the Army and Navy in 1544 at eight coats per 24-yard broadcloth or six coats per 18-yard kersey would have absorbed perhaps 6,000 of those 8,000 missing cloths. And in the invasion summer of 1545, purchases may have been wider still, as people reportedly equipped themselves willingly of their own mind and of their own costs and charges with white soldiers' coats. It seems unlikely, though possible, that these coats merely replaced other clothes that taxpayers or soldiers would have bought anyway. Soldiers' coats were not expected to wear well. In 1542, coats that had had a couple of weeks' wear were regarded as unfit for future use, the most part of the same being all worn out with harness. Occasionally, towns kept coats in store along with their armour, but more commonly they were sold off cheaply after a campaign or just left with the soldiers who'd worn them. Some of the cloth used in wartime would have been imported, certainly the fustian used for arming doublets, probably the linen cloth and canvas used to line helmets or back male armour, 
but most was made in England. Until the 1550s, it was mostly white or undyed, hence the standard Scottish name for English soldiers, white coats. And its dressing, if any, was the minimal cottoning. Small amounts of red cloth were bought to apply red crosses for identification. From the 1540s, the cloth was sometimes dyed, starting with the elaborate blue, black, white, red, and yellow combinations needed to make coats in the livery colours of the Duke of Norfolk, Lord Russell and others for Henry's show-stopping Boulogne campaign of 1544. But thereafter, the dye, if any, tended to be blue, which was cheap. The cloth came from all over England. At various times, Londoners used Hampshire kersey, blue Suffolk cloth, light blue northern kersey and Penistone white, while Cambridge bought Bridgewater red and Liverpool blue watchet from Yorkshire. It was mostly of low quality, but it still made work for weavers, spinners, wool growers, clothiers, and latterly dyers. Provincial drapers, too, did well. The Willoughbys of Wollaton bought cloth for soldiers at Coventry, Lichfield, and Drayton Bassett, while Sir Richard Gresham's officers at Fountains Abbey bought it at Ripon. Coats and breeches needed tailors, too, and towns often employed three or four in parallel to make them up fast. Shoes, boots, hats, tents, whatever was bought for soldiers made work for someone, and sometimes in bulk orders. Coat money and the conduct money spent by soldiers on their way to fight represented taxation channeled rapidly back into the manufacturing and hospitality sectors, and the sums involved were significant, some 7% of direct taxes between 1539 and 1552. Other resources, too, were redirected into war in ways that distorted but maintained economic activity. Grain, meat, fish and cheese were bought up in large quantities in the East Riding of Yorkshire and the Midlands for Scottish campaigns, Hampshire for France, East Anglia for both. Official prices were fair, but payment could be slow and local purchasing was often done by large-scale grain merchants or butchers who made a tidy profit. By the 1560s, feeding the Navy was a well-organised but challenging operation in which purveyors bought staple supplies from different counties on a quota system. Occasionally, the provisioning operations of whole towns were requisitioned, Sandwich and Dover to feed men and horses crossing the Channel, Stamford to host 10,000 men at five days' notice as the King marched against the Yorkshire rebels in 1489, the bakers of York, Durham, Newcastle or London to break bread or brisket for armies or navies. Some claimed that the purchase of supplies caused inflation, tripling the price of beef because so many oxen were sorted for the Guienne campaign of 1512, or creating scarcity of victuals in London in 1563 in supplying Le Havre. It's not clear that military demand did significantly increase prices, but it must have helped to keep markets moving, and Liverpool was cheered by the large amounts the Queen's victuals spent on supplies to fight Shane O'Neill in 1566. Elaborate supply services and brutal regulations for punishing prostitutes apparently left little room for the female camp followers who often sold supplies and processed plunder in contemporary armies, though Calais and Boulogne in the 1540s were, if we believe Ellis Griffith, overrun with prostitutes to the delight of their godless garrisons. So those horses to sell also did well in wartime, and some of the prices paid by church wardens or borough treasurers look alarmingly high. The London livery companies had a torrid time in 1536-7 and 1549. 
As the Crown first issued and then countermanded orders to raise mounted men, they bought horses on a seller's market and then sold them for much less than they had paid for them or gave them away in payment for the food they'd eaten in the meantime. On the northern border in the 1540s, affordable horses were in short supply. And at York in 1557, the horses ridden by its troops had to be priced by four honest men indifferently. Commissioners were charged to buy up carts and wagons and draft horses and oxen, but could rarely find enough, especially in the north. And even in the Midlands in 1569, arrangements were chaotic. Henry's wars caused another major diversion of activity in the building industry. As parish church buildings stalled, work on monastic sites was reduced to demolition or conversion, and the Elizabethan country house boom and the yeomanry's great rebuilding of rural England had not yet got underway, Henry's fortifications energized construction. Between 1539 and 1570, when country houses from Little Saxon Hall to Gorhambury House cost a few thousand pounds each, the government spent nearly 700,000 pounds building fortifications, more than half on England's coasts and borders and the rest in France and Scotland. Where country houses employed 50 or 60 men at a time, half a dozen of these projects peaked at 1,000 men and smaller ventures made it past 500. Royal powers of impressment and steady wages pulled in workers from Somerset and Gloucestershire to Sandgate in Kent, from Kent, Suffolk and Worcestershire to Berwick. Brickmakers and tilers went from Shrewsbury to Ireland to build Fort Protector and Fort Governor, tactfully renamed Maryborough and Philipstown, while Irish masons worked at Berwick, spending their money on clothes at Liverpool on the way home. Building supplies, stone, timber, ironwork, was sourced on an appropriately gargantuan scale. Henry's works were exceptional, but others built too. At Norham Castle, Bishops Fox and Ruvel made significant changes to cope with artillery. In 1510 to 11, up to 61 labourers worked on the site, some all year. And there were 20 masons, some from as far away as Yorkshire, four quarrymen, two smiths, and several lime burners. Bulky materials were shipped in from Gateshead or Newcastle to Berwick, and local men carried supplies on pack horses, including coal from the pits at Tweedmouth, Scremiston and Ford, eight miles away. Ships were also diverted for warfare, pressed by royal commissioners to expand the Navy's fighting forces or to carry supplies to the King's armies. Even foreign vessels in English ports were often taken up, their owners compensated at a higher rate than Englishmen. Henry VII had to send messengers round the coast to see what ships they could find, but by the start of Elizabeth's reign, the government was, was systematically estimating availability. Sailors were more of a problem, especially as the Navy expanded. When there were perhaps 20 to 30,000 experienced mariners in England, taking up several thousand to man the Navy was no easy task. By the 1560s, a well-developed system rested on the issue of commissions to ships' masters and others which they would present to local authorities in port towns, asking them to call seamen before them for selection. The offer of dependable pay and conduct money seems usually to have been enough to man the royal ships, but in wartime, things got tight. Newcastle and Whitby claimed in 1544 that most of their mariners were in royal service, and sailors sent home sick from the king's ships at Portsmouth in 1513 came from all round the southern coasts, from Barnstable, Plymouth and Dartmouth to London, Yarmouth and Lynn. Early in Elizabeth's reign, the net was cast wider still, as ships at Gillingham and Chatham 
were crewed by men from a dozen counties, from Norfolk and Suffolk to Monmouthshire and Carmarthenshire. The coincidence of warfare and fishing in late summer was a particular problem. In August 1545, women were going out fishing from the southwestern ports because most of the fishermen had been taken up for the navy. In September 1556, it was suggested that pressed fishermen be allowed a few days' leave to fish. And in July 1559, the sink ports could find no herring fishers to sit on a jury because so many were taken up to the Queen's Wars. The watermen of London, the cabbies of their day, claimed immunity from impressment to serve in the Queen's row barges. But this was overridden by statute in 1555 and thereafter they were drafted together with river boatmen from Windsor, Marlow, and Henley-on-Thames. In busy years, foreign sailors were taken up like foreign ships, for dental evidence suggests that up to a quarter of the crew of the Mary Rose may have been southern Europeans. The shortage of crews was exacerbated by the attraction of privateering. Letters of mark allowing individual merchants to take compensation for their losses from compatriots of those who had robbed them were issued throughout the period and led to attacks at sea as well as confiscations of goods in England. But wartime brought a more general invitation. From 1544, proclamations encouraged owners and captains to set out ships for the annoyance of His Majesty's enemies, permitting them to keep any ships, vessels, munitions, merchandises, wares, victuals, and goods they could take. The King's ships sometimes took prizes in wartime worth hundreds of pounds, but with privateering, larger profits beckoned. In 12 months, one Kingswear captain, backed by an Exeter merchant, made nine voyages. For an outlay of some £450, they took £11,000 worth of grain, wine and Newfoundland fish. The southwestern coast, Dartmouth, Foy, Plymouth, always generated enthusiastic privateers, but other ports were not left behind. Yarmouth, Hull and Liverpool, Southampton and Rye. Rye made enough from the goods it captured and a head tax levied on hundreds of French prisoners to offset much of the cost of its fortifications. At London in 1544, the disused Greyfriars, Austinfriars and Blackfriars were filled with wine and fish taken off French ships. In the War of 1562-4, there were reckoned to be 400 English privateering ships in action. Privateering was attractive to the Crown, since it harmed the enemy at minimal cost, but it was also problematic. When the king needed ships and sailors, he might find they were gone. Lord Russell complained in 1545 that many Western ships had set off to their own adventures, having wholly given themselves to pillage and robbery, which was perhaps a bit rich coming from the owner of the Maudlin Russell, which had taken a neutral Spanish ship earlier that year and sold its cargo at Plymouth. In 1558, the problem recurred, and Mary's government tried to recall all privateers to man the navy. Moreover, to allow English ships to waylay neutral vessels and remove enemy goods, as Henry explicitly did, was to invite the undiscriminating to attack any ship and work out the details later. German and Flemish ships were vulnerable, but the biggest problems came with the Spaniards. Robert Reniger of Southampton's capture of the San Salvador, loaded with American gold, off Cape St Vincent in March 1545, prompted the arrest of English merchants in Spain and, in reaction, a free-for-all assault on Spanish shipping, which brought an exotic booty but took three years of diplomacy to unravel. Similar events unfolded in 1563-4, showing how thin the line was between privateering and outright piracy. 
Henry VII had taken stern action for the reformation of those lying upon the sea as common pirates, robbing and despoiling as well our subjects as our friends. But the problem was intractable, and the depredations of English pirates cropped up in law courts domestic and foreign throughout our period. If English ports became too hot, there were always those in France, where exiles in Mary's reign based themselves, or in Ireland. According to the Earl of Surrey in 1521, the very land of refuge that English pirates resort most unto. Ports also succoured skimmers of the sea of diverse nations, or got drawn into contests between foreign vessels in the expectation of reward. Religious politics soon coloured such collaboration. In the 1560s and 70s, English pirates cheerfully cooperated with French and Dutch Protestant privateers, operating first from Le Havre and then out of Irish ports and quiet harbours such as Helford and Milford Haven, under the patronage of vice admirals such as Sir John Killigrew and Sir John Perrott. Elizabeth issued numerous proclamations against piracy and inappropriate privateering. Her navy swept the seas for pirates. She even named specific pirates for arrest, among them Martin Frobisher. Some thought she ought to do more. At Worcester in 1575, the Queen was told that she, having so mighty a navy as never any of your noble progenitors erst had the like, might very easily daunt and repress these robbers, that your subjects may with safety sail and use their traffic. Some looked after themselves. Southampton taking the 60-ton Edward of Hampton in 1565 and executing its crew. Yarmouth sinking an English pirate ship, operating under letters of mark from the Huguenot Admiral Coligny in 1569. But the pirates survived, and when the time came to annoy the King of Spain, they were useful. Privateering had its equivalent on land. On the border with Scotland, the wars of the 1540s developed a large-scale plunder economy, its prime commodities livestock, prisoners, and household goods. The results were reported to the king, who had ordered that Scottish raids be requited three hertz for one, with a statistical fetishism reminiscent of the 1960s Pentagon. In eight raids on the West March, between the 1st and the 8th of November, 1542, for example, usually by smallish parties operating at night, 278 cattle, 60 sheep, 39 horses, and 19 prisoners were taken. While on the East March, there were 159 raids in the two years from June, 1544. On return, the plunder was carefully divided up by those appointed to lead the raid, and it was valuable. Lord Wharton, reckoned the 1,300 high-quality sheep taken on one raid into Ettrick Forest worth more than 100 pounds. In total, 1,296 horses, 10,386 cattle, and 12,492 sheep were taken in five months in 1544 across all three marches. The numbers of sheep are comparable to those of the great East Anglian sheep masters of the day, who rarely ran more than 15,000 each. Yet the prisoners may have been worth more than anything. By all the law of arms that ever have been, as the Duke of Suffolk put it rather exasperatedly in settling a debate, each prisoner belonged to his individual captor, who ventured his life in taking of him. The captor might exact whatever ransom he could, but generally took one year's revenue for the landed, £80 for a lesser laird, £600 for a Scottish peer. Lists show how well individuals might do. In June 1544, on the way back from burning Jedburgh, English troops met Scots returning from a raid over the Tweed and took 229 of them. In the English party were the militarised border clans of Tyndale and Reedsdale, 
their names familiar to followers of northeastern football. The Charltons, four of them, scored 15 prisoners. Five Milburns bagged 21, and Henry Robson, five. These were all ordinary Scots, but the gentlemen of the garrisons took their social equals, the Coburn Laird of Langton, the Laird of Ayton's brother, Lord Hume's nephew, and his secretary. We can't price the 1,654 Scots taken on the East Marches in 1544-6, but they must have been valuable, though sometimes that value lay in exchange for an Englishman taken at Haddon Rig or elsewhere. So regular was the trade that when the Scottish government banned its subjects from visiting Berwick, it had to make exception to borrow prisoners or to pay their ransoms in money. In other theatres, pickings were slimmer. The economies of the Gaelic lordships in Ireland were poorer than that of Scotland, though raids that struck lucky might take hundreds of cattle and horses. France was richer, but much of the warfare there was static. Around the English garrisons and the siege camps of 1544, some raids culled large hauls of livestock or the wares on sale at a country fair. But generally, profit came from handfuls of prisoners. When the English did break across the Somme in 1523, they found that their Burgundian colleagues were more expert plunderers than they. There were celebrity prisoners, the Chevalier Bayard and the Duc de Longueville in 1513, the Baron de Saint-Blancard captured aboard his galley in 1546, but not enough to start an industry. Even at home, the urge to liberate property in wartime was strong. Some soldiers on the way to France or Scotland were tempted to take their neighbours cattle and victual without payment, and English troops in Ireland too readily plundered their hosts in the pale, sometimes on the excuse that they were really rebels. In England, some rebels plundered, but so did those serving the king, undeterred by royal prohibitions or encouraged by captains who thought plunder a terror to the refractory and a great encouragement to those who should fight against them. In the Western Rising, in 1549, a proclamation allowed any loyal subject to lay hands on the lands and goods of any active rebel, but things got out of hand. Several Exeter churches had their plate or books plundered by the king's army, or by rebels from whom loyalists then took them, while the attempt by the king's commander, Lord Russell, to systematise confiscation and reward as the revolt subsided, bred squabbling and injustice. If much economic activity was hindered or distorted by war, some was accelerated, above all the trade in armaments. Large imports stocked the Crown's stores and enabled merchants to supply individuals or institutions. The highest quality arms and armour were to be bought abroad, and individuals who could shop in Flanders did so, but most English consumers were dependent on imports to London or other ports such as Hull or Newcastle. Bow staves came in by tens of thousands, supplied mainly by merchants from Cologne and the Baltic, who had access to the mountainous and northerly regions where yew trees grew stronger than they did in England. In the 1480s, Hansa merchants and other foreigners were bringing into London barrels full of armour, large amounts of gunpowder and thousands of gunstones. For a while, the Italian merchants who dealt with the Tudors in international trade and banking, the Cavalcanti, Frescobaldi, Portinari, Della Fava and others were important for guns, armour, powder, saltpetre, and naval stores. Then Hansa merchants came to the fore again. Danzigers for saltpetre, Cologne men for armour and guns. Gerhard Grevart imported 1,400 handguns in 1549-50, and the international arms magnate Philip Palm 1,682 armours in 1561-2. 
while for Brescian handguns, Henry had to negotiate directly with the Venetian Republic. Londoners played their part too, importing bow staves, gunpowder, or Milanese armour from the 1480s, paving the way for the Greshams, who dealt in armaments and naval supplies from the 1510s. Early in Elizabeth's reign, Thomas Gresham became the Crown's principal agent in buying continental arms, armour, and gunpowder. The Greshams were not the only domestic importers in their generation. London haberdashers, grocers, and armourers brought in pikes, sword blades, halberd heads, gunpowder, saltpetre, and match, mostly from Antwerp. Others did well out of the navy. In the 1560s, Christopher Draper and Thomas Allen each did thousands of pounds worth of business with the Admiralty, mostly in imported Baltic ropes and tar. War boosted the retail trade in arms and armour, allegedly doubling prices as covetous persons took advantage and prompting several attempts at royal price control. Equally, peace brought prices down. William Paston pointed out in 1493 that now the wars be done, ye shall have harness every day better cheap than other. When the rebels were dispersed in the north in 1569, similarly, Sir Nicholas Bacon told his servant not to buy any dags yet, for I shall be provided at easier prices and of good also. London was the great centre of the retail trade, though not even Londoners necessarily knew their way around it. In 1558, the founders had to pay a penny to a man that brought us where the jacks were sold. London armourers carried large stocks of armour, sufficient to sell 20 Ormain rivets at a time, or hire out armour at 5% or 10% of the purchase price for use in marching watches or musters. No wonder it was the armourers who made earnest suit for the watches revival in the 1560s. They also held guns, while the London cutlers did a good trade in swords, pikes and bills. Most customers bought their arms and armour at London, but they were also available in provincial towns like Durham, Lincoln, Norwich, Ludlow and Shrewsbury, at fairs and second-hand even in villages. Newcastle was a big retail centre for the northern borders. In 1514-15, John Brandling, one of the city's richest merchants, supplied Norham Castle with bows, arrows, halberds, guns and powder. Ports bought guns and powder in from abroad, and Plymouth bought guns direct from Spanish manufacturers, paying them in cloth or hake, and once sending three cheeses as an extra reward. But in the long run, the Crown stores became the most important source of supply. In 1545, it was suggested that the men of the northern garrisons should be furnished with weapons of the King's stores at Newcastle at Berwick at reasonable prices, and in the 1560s, there were sales from the stocks brought in by Gresham. War brought work for military craftsmen, Indeed, an interlude of 1560 claimed that the armour of the Fletcher and the Bowyer were undone by peace. They served on campaign. The army in France in 1523 had 14 Bowyers, five Fletchers, five Stringers and five gunpowder makers. And they worked at home in manufacture or maintenance. But changing technology might threaten livelihoods. Those who complained most about the decay of their trade were Bowyers and Fletchers. They worked in big cities, medium-sized towns like Birmingham, Marlborough and Leeds, and even some villages, but everywhere they fell into difficulties. At London, the Crown spread orders for thousands of bows around half a dozen bowyers in the 1510s and 20s, but by the 1550s the emphasis was on pikes and guns, and the livery companies were ordering just a dozen or two bows at a time. Twenty London bowyers made wills between 1500 and 1569, but none after that date. At York, 
The bowyers and fletchers were fading by the mid-century, and it was the same at Bristol and King's Lynn. At Norwich, three bowyers and six fletchers became freemen under Henry VIII, one of each under Edward VI, and none thereafter. The Norwich census of the poor in 1570 included an octogenarian fletcher that hath little work and a 50-year-old unemployed bowyer. Henry was not content to import luxury armour, but brought in the armourers themselves, setting up first Milanese, then Flemish and German experts in a royal workshop at Greenwich, making strong, fashionable armour for himself and his courtiers. They followed a previous generation of foreign armourers working in London. Vincent Titler of Eno, Ralph of Ponthieu, royal brigadine maker, and others. There were English armourers too, and they kept going better than the Bowyers and Fletchers at York. At London, where their livery company managed by the 1570s to absorb the bladesmiths and secure powers to inspect all arms on sale in the city, and in other towns from Bodmin and Truro through Ludlow, Oxford and Cambridge to Durham. But their work seems to have consisted increasingly in selling and servicing foreign products or making up uncomplicated brigandines or coats of plates. William Gurr made armour for a hundred footmen for the king in 1512, but after the war secured a contract worth nearly twice as much for cleaning and repairing thousands of items of armour. At least the insistence that towns and parishes, noblemen and gentlemen maintained stocks of armour made work for armourers, furbishers or cutlers to keep them in trim, paid at a daily rate or sometimes retained by the year and sometimes in a long-term relationship. St Martin in the Fields used William Waters every year from 1555 to 1567, St James's Louth, Richard Riggs from 1560 to 1572. Guns, both handguns and larger pieces, seem primarily to have been looked after by smiths or locksmiths, but armourers and bowyers also took a hand, and specialists steadily emerged, first at the Tower, then in London, where migrant gunsmiths from the sophisticated but troubled Netherlands and France set up in large numbers in the 1560s and 70s. Henry's wars produced some strange dead ends in weapons development, like his breech-loading gun shields, with their alarming recoil and hot gas emissions and their odd resemblance to a lethal dustbin lid. <laughs> but they also stimulated the development of famous regional arms industries. In 1514, the King's Fletcher took delivery of over 180,000 arrowheads from one Sheffield hardware man, for example, and Birmingham bills could be bought in the 1520s. Yet more celebrated at the time was the casting of iron cannon in the Weald. The leading gun founders of the 1520s and 30s were Italians and Frenchmen, such as Francesco Arcana and Pierre Baud, joined from the 1530s by Robert, John and Thomas Owen. They worked in bronze at London, but from 1543 the blast furnaces of Sussex, which had been making shots since the 1490s, began to produce cast iron guns apparently on the initiative of William Levitt, rector of Buxted, and Francesco Arcana's son, Arcangelo. By 1553, the Ordnance Office had bought more than 250 Sussex cannon, and the industry developed strongly through Elizabeth's reign, stimulating a wider boom in wheeled and iron. Gunpowder making was another field for foreign expertise. Henry VIII kept a succession of powder makers busy at the Tower, from Hans Wolf to Antony of Naples, though English master gunners worked alongside them. The search for domestic saltpetre supplies was, as David Cressy has shown, a haphazard and stressful affair, as Henry licensed saltpetre men to dig up his subjects' lands and buildings. 
By the 1540s, they were causing trouble in towns from Shrewsbury and Ludlow to London and Poole. Elizabeth's government gave blessing to a sequence of entrepreneurs who undertook to supply saltpetre either manufactured by controlled chemical processes, which never worked very well, or at least dug up and boiled with less annoyance than usual. The effects were unimpressive, yielding by the 1570s only about a tenth of the government's needs and prompting elaborate evasion. In 1571, Sir Henry Jerningham wrote to his friend Thomas Kitson for help. For that I understand you can by art make a saltpeter man so blind that although he passeth by your great woods, yet he shall not be able to see or view them, to take of them for the making of saltpeter. Shipbuilding must also have been stimulated by war for new ships for the navy or privateering and repairs to battle damage. Shipyards were widely distributed around the English coast and sailmakers, ropers, blacksmiths, plumbers and others joined shipwrights in plying their trades there. The Tudors made only patchy use of the earlier system by which private ship owners, constructing vessels large enough for naval use, were paid a cash bounty or emitted customs dues, relying instead on the profitability of long-distance trade to incentivise the construction of large ships. Meanwhile, permanent royal dockyard facilities at Portsmouth, Deptford, Chatham and elsewhere gradually increased in scale of expenditure and employment. In 1559, there were 524 craftsmen and labourers at work on 22 ships, and in 1570, in peacetime, there were more than 400. Specialist artisans did well out of the navy. In 1562-3 alone, Richard Stevens, compass maker of Tower Hill, supplied 156 standard compasses and four great compasses at a cost of £22. But he was no doubt also selling to trading ships, and it's hard to know how far to push an analysis of industries related to war, particularly when so much of military expenditure was on food for men and horses, and when unlikely objects had military uses. The cutting of marshland reeds was of vital importance to the Navy, as thousands of sheaves of them were burnt to soften the pitch on the hulls of ships for breaming, scraping off detritus. Goose farming was in its way part of the military-industrial complex, as the flight feathers of geese were also the best flight feathers for arrows. Wars also tend to generate a black economy, and Henry's were no exception. Supplies were stolen from quays as they were being loaded. Soldiers sold off their horses, armour and weapons. More systematic fraud was practised by those who pretended to have royal commissions to purvey horses, sometimes just so people would pay them to go away, or those who took money at musters to allow some men to stay at home. The last was a regular problem from the 1540s, and so serious by Mary's reign that point five of the nine-point instructions issued to those raising troops in 1558 was that no money should be taken to spare anyone. John Vaughan, in 1562, seems to have combined two kinds of racket, taking money from parishes on the pretext of providing armour for their men, and then taking money from soldiers to exempt them from service. Governments, central and local, tried to punish such abuses and deal with wider problems caused by war. Proclamations to hold food prices down were issued in almost every year of conflict. Musters were countermanded in 1560 so as not to hinder the harvest. Between 1546 and 1560, Guildford and Hereford questioned vagabonds who had served in the Boulogne garrison. York was told to implement the vagabondage statutes against ex-soldiers prone to loiter, 
and the Kent towns were warned to make sure that no discharged soldiers be suffered to live out of service or without his occupation or idly or suspiciously or to carry about with them handguns or dags so that the country might be spared notable felonies and burglaries. Abingdon Common Council worried in 1561 that if townsmen went off to serve in other towns' contingents, their wives and children would be left to charge on Abingdon's poor rates. Policy on enclosure had to address the fear that depopulation was causing a lack of people to defend us against our enemies, as John Hales put it, and the reality that some enclosure disputes involved the obstruction of archery practice on open fields, and others the responsibility of different users of the land for providing soldiers to serve the king. Policy on the fishing industry aimed to keep ships afloat and sailors employed. As Cecil put it, it is necessary for the restoring of the Navy of England to have more fish eaten. Policy on horse breeding and timber growing aimed to keep armies and dockyards supplied. War then harmed the economy, but also in various ways and in various places diverted or even stimulated it. Some people did well, privateer captains, arms importers, horse dealers, and others did badly, wine merchants, farmers by the tweed. It's as hard to draw up a balance sheet for Henry's wars as M.M. Poston and K.B. Macfarlane found it in their famous debate to agree on the costs and benefits to England of the Hundred Years' War. In Henry's day, there were fewer of the factors that Macfarlane thought brought profit, plunder from France, prisoners, king's ransoms. But the much larger size of armies and navies in proportion to the population and the lesser significance of domestic labour shortages as the population grew make calculations about the recycling of wealth within the economy more significant but equally intractable. It is at least clear that the debasement of the coinage to fund Henry's and Edward's wars had dire effects and taxation may have been almost as bad. As for the more direct impact of war, it seems hard to see how Edward IV's claim to Parliament that it would bring increase of riches and prosperity made sense, except in terms of a reconquest of Gascony and Normandy, which would bring back the 14th century wine trade and peaceful Lancastrian commerce across an English-dominated channel. The Edwardian and Elizabethan statesmen who promoted military industries did so not in the interests of prosperity, but in the quest for security and for import substitution to lessen the impact of arms supplies on the balance of payments. That fitted with the view expressed by a string of councillors around 1560, Bacon, Cecil, Mason, Paget, that England had been exhausted by wars beyond her capacity. As Thomas Barnaby told Cecil in 1552, that the English had spent all our riches and destroyed a great number of subjects and left all our money in Flanders, Eno and Artois to the utter destruction of our realm. No contemporaries seem to have thought realistically that war bred wealth. But did it really involve the destruction of a great number of subjects? So far, we have talked about war for four weeks and hardly anyone has got hurt. Next week, we shall have to turn to killing and dying.